Well, last Sunday, if you were here, you may have noted that we were just starting a fresh new series going through the book of Mark. And uh, I, last week, the title of the service was talking about the, the whole idea of the curtain being drawn back, the idea of us finally being able to attach a face to the name. Up until that point, people had only known of God. They had seen his works of power, but were unable to actually point to what he looked like, who he was. We read last week, we read an amazing passage in Hebrews 1-3 that describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Not similar, not like, but the exact, the actual, we described it as God in an earth suit. Jesus finally allowed us to see what God actually looked like. And so the last week, the curtain was drawn. This week, we start to get a little bit more figuring out what was he like? Because at that point, people were still confused at this. They're, I mean, they had been exposed or introduced to who he was, but the big question was, what is he like? How does he respond to people? How does he interact with the world around him? How does he deal with, with sin and, and sinful people and messed up, broken people like myself? How will he respond? And so now, not just the curtain is pulled back, we start as we work through the book of Mark to actually get to know him a little better because the truth is, there's still a lot of people, if they're honest, they're like, I really don't know what Jesus was like. I have no idea. I've never spent any time in, in the study of, of his life. And honestly, a lot of the world, the only picture they have of who Jesus was, was his followers. People like us, maybe people that haven't exactly lived out being a model of what Jesus Christ was actually like. Their only point of reference is Christ followers. I imagine for the last 2,000 years, a lot of people pretty, uh, or, or God being pretty frustrated watching how many things that were done under the name of Jesus Christ, but not consistent with his son. I was thinking about if someone were to say that they were a Chad follower, the guy playing the piano, and then did nothing, and many of you in Agape are, and uh, just teasing, but, and then doing nothing even similar. Not, you're like, I don't even know how to play the piano. Like that would be, it would make no sense. And so probably pretty frustrating to have uh, just thousands of us butchering it. But finally, here in the text, we're going to have the record set straight. Actually see what Jesus was like, how he actually responded in the title that when he came and arrived was described as a friend of sinners. In fact, in Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He didn't show up the way they expected. And they say... Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Listen to that statement, friend of sinners. And that's what we're titling the message here this morning because that to me is a little bit more compelling than maybe the flannel graph Jesus that you grew up with. How many of you grew up in church world where you actually were introduced to flannel graphs? Do you guys remember these? Yes, and it was normally I was, I was working through some back closets, finding some there, and look, look at Jesus in his perfectly white robe. Usually it had a light blue sash. They, they were a little bit controversial here with the red sash, uh, but breaking out of the norm. But, but Jesus didn't show up like this, just stuck in the synagogue. He went out and was amongst the people, so much so that they described him as a friend of sinners awesome picture. Let me pray before we dive in. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the text here this morning that actually sets the record straight of who you actually were, 
what you were like, how you dealt with people, how you responded to situations, who you chose to spend time with, who you chose to to befriend. God, I just pray that coming out of this time this morning, we'd have a clearer picture of who God is because we're seeing the exact imprint in Jesus Christ. We invite you here now. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you guys wouldn't mind joining me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning. I encourage you last week as we work chapter by chapter through this entire book for you in preparation for Sunday morning to read the entire chapter of Mark 2. And then here on the service, we'll kind of zoom in and kind of focus on one particular section of the text. And so next week, what section would you be reading? Nice. You guys are doing great with this. All right. So chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to see how he got this title, Friend of Sinners. Take a look at verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. I want to pause there. I know that was just a short verse, but I think there's actually a lot packed into those few words there. And I want to first start by clarifying what is meant when we say, when we use the descriptor of calling someone a sinner. If we're not careful in church world, that can be a pretty offensive term where people are like, I don't want to be labeled a sinner. In fact, maybe, maybe that's the creepy guy at the end of my aisle right now, but that's not me and uh, Robbie. Uh, but, that's, but, but this description here is, is describing when it says a sinner, it's describing anyone that's fallen short of God's perfect standard. Anybody willing to admit that, confess that right here? Is anybody here? If not, if you're not, uh, we have some issues to deal through, uh, like liar. But a Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. I got that right this week. And so uh, th- this idea, this picture is that when we use the word sinner, it's really synonymous with the word people. Because Why? Because we're all sinners. We all fall in that category, regardless of how religious or unchurched we are. And so pointing the fact that his affection was not, it was not distributed differently based on people's actions and their background and their history, he spent time with everyone. Look in the text, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him couple things, observations that you noticed there. The first one was this, this picture of he went out. I love this picture because that took him out of the synagogue of the, the, the flannel graph that we saw there and actually went out amongst the people. He didn't just talk the game, he lived it out. I grew up playing a, a lot of basketball. It was my favorite sport and a my best friend, uh, Joe, and I, and another friend, uh, Doug, the three of us would just consistently go to different public courts playing basketball. There's guys, certain guys that would show up at basketball courts, and in Chicago, very into Michael Jordan. There's guys that would show up and would have all the gear, had the Jordan logo on the matching the shorts and the t-shirt and the shoes and like the full garb, and then you'd see their basketball game and you'd be like, What? You, you haven't spent any time in the gym. Like, what, what is that? You, you'd have the description that we'd call that person would be a poser. Yeah, that's right, a poser. You'd be like, that's, that, 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 that's not accurate because you hadn't actually put in the time. You haven't spent time 
out on the courts. And what I love about Jesus Christ and the example and the model that he set for us is he went out amongst the people. He didn't mind rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands a bit dirty. He didn't try to keep that tied white uh, robe perfect. Like he went out to be with the people. So that's the first thing. It says that he went out. And the second thing that we notice is that it says again. Again, you're like, okay, well, why is that interesting? The idea there is that it wasn't a one-time occurrence. A lot of times in church world, we can do our, our once every six months visit to a, a homeless shelter or a, a place, and you're like, yeah, I go out and I, I hang out with people that are in need. And you're like, no, no, this is, this is a description of, of, of Jesus Christ. Was it was part of his lifestyle. He was amongst the people as part of his routine. So it says that he went out again. Then it says beside the sea. I don't know if there's anybody else here that loves being by the ocean. One of the fun things of moving to California, love. I'm that guy that likes long romantic walks by the ocean. And, uh, and, so, and so, but the truth is when you look at this, you're like, oh, maybe he just liked water. He, he made it, you know, like that was probably cool to see. But, but here the truth is it's a little bit bigger than that, is what was cool about going out amongst the people and by the water is that there was space there was room. He wasn't confined by the walls of a room. Everybody was invited. Large crowds could gather. Everybody was there. It wasn't an exclusive group. And so he went out amongst them. It was a consistent pattern. He went in places where he could be with lots of people. And then you notice the response. What does it say? The crowd was coming to him. The crowd was coming to him. The, see, the truth is, is when we actually engage with the world around us, the message of Jesus Christ that we have attached to us is something people are drawn to. We've bought into this lie that people aren't really interested in spiritual things. And, you know, don't, that's like a big faux pas to talk about anything to do with God or, or, or Jesus Christ. But the truth is, people are drawn to it. Remember, for years and years as a young adults pastor, I'd take different teams of college students on different campuses with the sole intent of just going out and blessing people and looking for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus Christ. Remember, if I confess and I'm honest with myself, a lot of times on my drive to these events, I'd be like, oh, I'd rather just, it's been a long day, I'd rather just crash and, and channel surf, but on the drive there, I'm always just like, oh, I don't feel like doing this if I'm, if I'm real honest. But every single time, God would show up and bless us because we stepped out in faith. And you know what we did? We showed up on these campuses with students and going out in pairs of, of two. And we went around and talking to people. And it was a simple question that we'd ask. We'd say, hey, we're just from a church in the area. We're trying to be a blessing here on this campus. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And that opened up so many conversations of people like, you want to pray for me? What? what? Why? Because we chose to engage and spend time with people, God blessed that and used that. And so many drives home, I remember just confessing to the Lord, God, I'm sorry for my attitude. Thank you so much for showing up here. What we see in the example of Jesus Christ is that he chose to go out and be with people. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Next thing we see in verse 14 is a little bit a step further than that. Verse 14 says this, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed. So the title of this section is, He Intentionally Pursued Sinners. I love that Jesus wasn't just about the crowds and the, the large gatherings, that he chose to actually pursue individuals. 
So who was this guy that he was choosing to engage with? This guy by the name of Levi. He's not just the inventor of great genes, but the, this, guy, this guy Levi. Okay, that was dumb. Uh, the, this guy Levi, you might be more familiar with his new name. Who can tell me what the new name that was given to Levi was? Matthew, that's right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the author of one of the Gospels, an account of Jesus' life. It's pretty cool to see this first invitation for him to follow, but I also love to see that Christ changes names. He changes names. Like, who, who does that? Can you imagine somebody meeting somebody and being like, you know what? They say to you, I want to give you a new name. You'd be like, okay, creepy. You know what I mean? Like, that, that would be so weird. But the, way, the one way that it works is when it's God Almighty, when it's the exact imprint of God in the flesh. He gives people new names. Think about the different names. Simon, he named Peter. And it's, it's cool to see the, how the names are usually just the exact opposite of what that person typically is known for. What does Peter, the name Peter mean? Who knows that one? Rock, that's right. So this spineless guy, he's saying, I'm giving you this new name, you're going to be the rock. And so uh, even, even, even before uh, the rock that we know now. And so Saul, he named him Paul. Who, who thinks they know what the name Paul means? Small and humble. Small and humble. That's pretty cool, huh? So the Paul that was so confident and was going to uh, depend on his righteousness and take out every one of these Christians, God says, nope, I'm going to make you small and humble. Now here, finally, the name for, for Levi, he decides to give him a new name. He names him Matthew, which means gift of God. Gift of God. And upon first hearing that title, that might not seem like such a cool thing, although that would be a pretty sweet thing to have Almighty God in the flesh saying, hey, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm calling you the gift of God. You're like, oh, yes, I'll take that. And so, and, and so here in this context, it's only amplified when you know a little bit more about who Le- Levi was, know who is actually talking about. First, the, the, to know about Levi is that Levi... The name originates with the Levites, and the Levites, uh, as a Jew, would have been known for those who, who were designated to take care of the temple and to take a, have their lives revolve around things related to God. So it, it at least originated there, but he was a Jew that was doing what? Playing the role of a tax collector, which would have been the biggest traitor thing you could possibly do as a Jew, because why? Because the Jews were currently under Roman rule, and that was going to work for the enemy. Say, hey, listen, I'm going to leave my team and go work for the Roman team and to collect money from my people. And see, the way it worked at that time, if someone wanted to be a tax collector, they would submit a bid to the Roman government saying, this is the amount of, uh, of taxes that I'm committed to collect. Anything above and beyond what they were able to collect, what did they get to do with it? Just keep it, just keep it. And so tax collectors weren't known for just, just squeaking by and just making it, much like IRS agents. But, uh, but they, they, they were known for being absorbent in the amount that they would charge because everything else in this unregulated system would then pad their own pockets. So he was just hated by his peers, by his own people. They were, they were, so, they were so hated that he was even... Uh, they were even excommunicated from the synagogue. They weren't even allowed to go in 
to worship. So tax collectors would have been the lowest of the low in that culture. So abused. And, and so, in fact, I was reading this week this one article that was saying tax collectors were much like today's mafia, where they had to have their own, like, muscle, their own thugs to actually collect the taxes. Because so, can you imagine trying to collect a tax from a, a group of fishermen and just being like, here, give me your tax. Like, no, they had to show up with, like, game on, collect the money in order to pad their pockets. So very hated person in that, in that culture. And at the beginning of Mark 2, we see where this takes place in verse 1, that it was happening in Capernaum, which was a major trade route where boats docked, and there's tons of these tax collectors around, kind of like sharks in bloody water, collecting as much tax as they possibly can. What I love in the text, it says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Thought that was interesting because it had nothing to do with him pursuing Christ. That's what's so amazing about the way our God operates. He doesn't wait for us to kind of get our life straight and be on this pursuit of figuring him out. He's like, you know what? I'm going to pursue you even though you're still sitting on your butt. Even though you're still sitting on your butt, God does the pursuing here. And Levi had nothing to do with it. It was just God handpicking him and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue you. I'm going to chase after you. And so even while he was sitting on his butt, he invites him to what? To follow me. I've always, if I'm honest, I've always read, read these texts about the invitations of the disciples saying, hey, come follow me. And I always felt like that seemed a little bit weird. Doesn't it seem weird like you're like, come follow me? And you're like, yes. I will follow. You know what I mean? Like, what, what was that all about? Like, they dropped their nets, they leave everything behind, and in this, in this case, he was a tax collector and, and leaves completely everything behind. I mean, that wasn't a business that you could go back into later. It wasn't like you could pick up a fishing rod later. It was like, man, when you're in, you're in. There's no safety net. He left everything. I've learned just a little bit about the, the culture of that day and how things operated. And it, for anybody that was a student growing up in the Jewish community, one of the things that you aspired, the greatest aspiration, would to be to end up to someday be a rabbi. That was kind of the, the, the top of the, uh, of the food chain, especially in a culture that was very religious-based. And so every student, their aspiration growing up would have been to become an apprentice of a rabbi. Does that make sense? And so in students, but the, the way that it worked was that the rabbis would handpick only the top students, top of the class, the ones that had succeeded and really knew their stuff, then they would handpick them to be their mentee, if you will. In this case, in most cases, for most Jewish boys, if they didn't kind of make the grade, they would go back to their area of business, whether that was a fisherman. In this case, he went a new route probably from his father as a tax collector, but they would go a different route as far as an occupation. Does that make sense? And so for this, this was a big deal when a rabbi, especially one that's rallying crowds around him, makes this invitation and says, come on come follow me. It wasn't like, hey, let's go grab a burger together. Follow me had, it had the, 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 the weight of that of saying, hey, come be my follower. And what I love about Jesus Christ as we're getting to know him, he's saying, I'm turning this kingdom upside down. I'm not taking from the top of the class. 
I'm taking from the bottom barrel. I'm taking from the least of the least. I'm taking from the despised. That was Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not handpicking the top students. I'm picking the ones that have been rejected, the, one, the ones are, that aren't even allowed to go into the synagogue. That's what the Jesus was about that we're following here today. So he intentionally pursued people. And so this, this was a, a pretty powerful experience for, I imagine, uh, imagine for Levi to have that second chance. I think about this picture of pursuing people, and I know each one of us, if we're tr- being true to our calling of, of, of going and making disciples, it's a, it's a passion area. And I was thinking of a great example of this intentionality. My wife and I attended Moody Bible Institute, and I don't know if you know much about D.L. Moody, but his, his story, if you ever get a chance to read a summary of it, did some amazing, just, just consistent and faithful things there. You can see a, a picture of him. That was a, before uh, Beards got in style again. And, uh, and, and so uh, back then, uh, here's an account. I'll just read briefly about D.L. Moody. It says, D.L. Moody made a covenant with God, listen to this, that he would witness for Christ to at least one person each day. That's pretty cool. Some intentionality there. One night at about 10 o'clock, he realized that he had not yet witnessed or shared the, the good news of Jesus Christ with someone. So he got out of bed, got dressed, and in the Chicago snow, which trust me is not a good thing, went out in, into the street and spoke to a man standing by a lamppost, asking him, are you a Christian? The man flew into a violent rage and threatened to knock Moody into the gutter. Later, that same man went to an elder in the church and complained that Moody was doing more harm in Chicago than 10 men were doing good. The elder begged Moody to temper his zeal with knowledge. Three months later, Moody was awakened at the YMCA by a man knocking at the door. It was the man he had witnessed to. The man said, I want to talk to you about my soul, he said to Moody. He apologized for the way he had treated Moody and said that he had, no, he had had no peace ever since that night on Lake Street when Moody witnessed to him. Moody led the man to Christ and he became a zealous worker in the Sunday school. I love that, that picture of a man that took this charge seriously, said, hey, I'm going to model Jesus' example and I'm going to go out and be intentional about not rubbing people's face in their sin, but intentional in introducing people to the amazing grace that we sang about just a few minutes ago. He was intentional with reaching out to people. He took it even a step further in verse 15. It says says that he dined with sinners. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, referring to in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You realize so many times when somebody first comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, their first inclination is like, man, I got to get out and tell people about this. Like you think maybe even about your own story when you finally discovered the simple truth that, that I'm fallen, I'm broken, and I'm separated from God, but because Jesus' work on the cross, I can have that relationship restored just by putting simple faith in his death and resurrection. And you're like, man, that's simple that everybody should know that. So what do you do? Start inviting people. This was the very first life group, if you will. Maybe not. But uh, he started, he said, you know what? I'm going to invite my old friends to connect with my new friends. And in fact, in the parallel passage in Luke 5, 29, it says that Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast. 
So this wasn't just a few guys at a Burger King. This was like a massive party. This was a big deal that was happening, the first introduction of, of the life group. So he starts, and look at the text there. It says, and as he reclined, this is describing Jesus, at table in his house. Doesn't that sound like, like weird like verbiage there, at table? Actually, that term isn't by accident. At table is actually a term to show that you're eating with someone you accept. Eating with someone that you accept. So here, Jesus, Almighty God, God in the flesh, is eating with these sinners, with these tax collectors, these despised group of men in that culture. And even eating a meal was even more than, than it was a big deal today. I mean, today we might have a, a business lunch with somebody, and a, you really don't even think twice about it. It's just no big deal, just part of our, our culture. But in that culture, it was a, a, it was a form of intimacy, it was a big deal. Even the way that they ate was a, a huge deal. They typically, and this is kind of weird for us to hear, but a lot of times they would have one large bowl of food that they would be eating from, and then each person would have a different piece of bread to be dipping into that bowl of food. Kind of a, some serious double dipping going on there. You know, like, a, like your night, for all you clean people, you're like, that's like my worst nightmare. And, uh, and so, but du- double dipping in this sauce and eating and, and sharing in a, a meal there and that that time frame wasn't something that you ate for 20 minutes and we're done with. This is more like an Italian get-together where everybody's eating for like two hours straight. It's an awesome picture. And so for him to be doing this was an extreme, extreme, huge deal in that culture. Makes me think of the, the quote, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. You see, he's not accepting Levi's lifestyle, but he's introducing him to a new one. Saying, hey, I'm not here to condemn you of the old. I just want to introduce you to the new, what you are capable, what is possible. You see, this was a new kingdom Jesus was bringing. And I love that it says that he was reclining with them, showing that he wasn't just like awkward there standing at the party in the corner and be like, hey guys, good to see you. I'm okay with your drinking. You know, like, no, he's reclining. He's reclining and, and hanging out and spending time with the people there. And look again, we see how, how people responded. Earlier you saw the crowds gather. Here it says that many came. Many, it was like a huge IRS revival. It was an awesome picture of God doing something there. So he was very intentional about spending time with people. He dined with them. And then this last section, verse 16, he was also clear on his mission to sinners. Take a look at these last two verses as we wrap up. It says, In the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, I love it, they're probably all across the room and Jesus' like ears like, no, I heard that, I'm God. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But sinners, I love that picture there. It's crazy to think that Jesus himself wasn't a religious enough for the people of his time. Isn't that crazy to think God Almighty in the, in the flesh didn't even meet their expectations? Because, because at, at that time, they're saying, you know what? You're not supposed to be spending time with these people. They're bad people. And they hated him for that. 
You see, what had happened there is the, the religious leaders, which we describe, and you've heard many times a descriptor of if you've been in church, scribes and Pharisees would have been at the, at the height of the religious uh, hierarchy, if you will. What had happened is that they had become experts at the law. I mean, they knew, they knew God's word. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. They had become experts, and they had come to some conclusions about the text themselves. But here the dangerous thing that they'd come to fatally conclude was that they were righteous and others were sinners. That's what they had concluded. They concluded that they were righteous and that others were sinners, not realizing that religious people need Jesus just as much as the unchurched. Amen to that? Religious people need Jesus just as much as the unchurched. They'd come to that fatal conclusion and see they took it even a step further. They went around so they knew God's word really well. They, they came to conclusions about it and then they went around casting their judgment on others. And before we're too quick to, to be like, man, what terrible people. How easy is it for us to slip into the same mold? to know God's word inside and out. We've been in Sunday school. We've been in the youth group. We did the Awana thing, VBS. We'd never missed. Like we get it so that we have it all in here. And then what happens? You start to come to false conclusions about your own righteousness and your own whatever. And, and you come to not just there, you take it the next step further on your high horse. Then we start judging people or saying, you know what? You're unlike me. You're unlike the, the, the way that I see God's word. And that's the danger. We fall under the same thing that the scribes and Pharisees fell into. So they started asking some tough questions. They said, basically, they're saying, what is he thinking? What is he thinking? You see, what, what the, the, the truth is, is that a scribe and a Pharisee, they had bought into this lie that the life of, a, of a, someone following God was to live separate from the world around them was to live separate. But the truth is, that isn't even close to how God defines a Christ follower. Separation is the exact opposite of what God has invited us to live. We're supposed to be a, a, a people, once we've embraced Jesus Christ, that's committed to engaging with the world around us, breaking through to the culture. So they were completely missing the boat, and that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. It says, when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, listen, doctors have a specific purpose. It's to help people that are sick. And the, the problem was is that the religious leaders didn't re realize that they fell in that category too. They didn't know Romans 3.23 yet. They hadn't committed that one to memory. So because of that, they started coming to conclusions about him and began a hate that eventually led to the being hanging him on a cross. But here's what they didn't realize, is that, that in their separation, they were missing it. In their separation, they were missing it. And what I want to caution us as a, as a body of Christ, as a church, is that we can do the same thing. And a, a lot of times, not even on purpose. We can get in such a, a bubble where you're just like, you know what? Really, everybody I know are Christ followers. My friends at church, I've picked a mechanic that I know is a Christian. My kids go to a Christian school. Their teachers are all Christians. You know, I, I have a tax guy that does my taxes. He's a Christian. I, uh, I have uh, anybody I do lunch are only people that I, I've known and I've identified in my workplace that are other Christians. And we become this exclusive deal and we don't even realize it. That's not what Jesus was known for. That's why he was given the, the title friend of sinners. 
That's why that title stuck on his epitaph, if you will, would have read friend of sinners. What was meant to be an insult was honestly a huge compliment. Wouldn't you love if at the end of your days, if somebody were to assess your life, it's just like, you know, this guy didn't didn't differentiate between anybody. He was a friend to everybody. He was extending love to everybody that crossed his path. He was a friend of sinners. I'd love to have that. I I have this picture here to conclude with, and I was thinking of a a blank epitaph, if if you will. What's going to actually go on your stone? I was even just looking for that picture, saw uh, some fun ones. One of them read was, I told you I was sick. And uh, so some different ones that are out there, uh, there's some fun ideas, but the idea is, the reality is, if we really assess our hearts and, and who, we, who we are and before Almighty God, before our, our peers, how do people see us? I don't know. If I'm truly making the claim of following Christ, maybe that should be a descriptor of me, right? I'm going to invite Chad and the worship team to come up, and I would love for us to have a, a couple moments just to wrestle through that. Wrestle through what would it take, what adjustments would need to happen for that to be a descriptor of me, how would a week have to look different? What would my interactions have to look like? How would the way that I see people, how would even the dangerous question, what judgmental attitudes would have to be put to death in order for that to be adopted? I want to spend a, give you guys just a few moments to just wrestle through that as he's playing, and we'll conclude with a song. We thank you for that truth that not only did you show up and live the perfect example for us to follow, you also made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, God. We thank you so much for that. I pray if there's anyone here that's never come to know you as a friend of sinners, that today would be that day, God. They wouldn't leave without getting that that invitation that was extended, that same thing that, that drew Levi out of a life of thugging and stealing taxes from his own people. God, I pray that you'd change us, that you'd draw us, that that invitation to follow would have the same response. God, we praise you so much for the example that was set. Pray that this week that we would go out and we would be friends of sinners. Praise in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.